Well, good morning. It's good to see you all again. Hey, I can see you now. Starting to see you a little bit more, and now I can see you fully. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 5. We will uh, be back there again this morning, uh, as I didn't originally attend for all three weeks of this uh, to be in 1 John, but it's just so much easier just to teach the Bible verse by verse and stay in there and that kind of a deal. So uh, anyway, First uh, uh, John chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 18 in a moment. Uh, just another announcement uh, that Ryan didn't mention because uh, we planned it after the bulletins. Anyway, uh, on September, or September, it's not, not September, February. Uh, I say, y'all already planned in September? Kind of. Uh, on February the 5th, the first Sunday evening in February, uh, we're having a starting point. So I'm tell you what starting point is. If, if you're a guest, maybe you've been hanging out with us for a while, or maybe you're new to us, uh, and you want to know more about us, kind of kind of really uh, what we've done the past couple weeks is kind of like a 30,000-foot view of who we are. But if you want to kind of get down in the trenches and, and who we are and things like that, uh, or if you if you say, hey, I'm ready to join Crosspoint, uh, that's the way you do that. And so it's a way to, to get more information about us. We'll provide some food uh, that evening. Uh, but so if you want to know more about us uh, or if you're ready, say, hey, I want to I want to become a member of Crosspoint, that's the way in which... Uh, we do membership here, so we don't ask you to come down and, you know, transfer your letter and things like that. We just, we go to, we, we have this kind of orientation of who we are, and at the end of it, this, and you don't have to decide right then, I want to do, but anyway, if you're interested in that, it's February the 5th at 5 p.m. over in the education building. Uh, Luke, uh, I talked to him this morning, he had flown into Houston, uh, he had been, the past couple weeks, he's been in North Carolina doing a little mini term for his PhD work, and so he'll be back this afternoon, uh, and so this morning when I talked to him, uh, he had just landed in Houston, so anyway, continue to, uh, to continue to pray for him. Uh, this morning, uh, I've, ent- I've titled the sermon, No Middle Ground, uh, and, and so I, I always title it, but I never, I'll never mention it. I know y'all see it back there, but I never mention it. Uh, so I did it this morning, No, no Middle Ground, and so you'll get, it'll make sense as we get there. Uh, and so a- as a church, I mentioned it already during Gospel Reach, for the past three weeks, uh, we've been kind of re-emphasizing who we are as Crosspoint, uh, how we exist for God's glory. Uh, and we believe that the way that we can, individual, as individual members, but as a church, as a collective, bring him the most glory uh, is really three values that we have. We commit ourselves uh, to God's truth, God's people, and God's mission. Uh, so this morning, we're going to talk about how we, as, as individual members, uh, but as the church as a whole, how do we commit ourselves to God's mission? How can we be a, of service to him? Uh, and so... Uh, because one thing that I'm totally convinced of, definitely in our time through the book of Acts, by the way, next Sunday we'll start back in Acts chapter 11, uh, and we'll hang out there until we take another break, whenever that is. And so anyway, uh, next week. So one thing that I am more and more convinced of uh, is that God is unwavering in his commitment to his mission, uh, his mission to glorify himself uh, through a group of people called the church uh, who believe in his son, that one day he'll present that bride to his son as a reward for his work on the cross. And he is committed to that mission. He promised it to his son in eternity past. And one day in the culmination of all things, he will present a people to his son. And I believe he is 100% committed to that. Uh, we see it through the book of Acts. We see it even in our own lives. And so therefore, if God is committed to his mission, we as his people should be committed to his mission as well. It is his mission uh, that we are caught up in and sold out for. It is his mission to build his church that you and I, uh, that we are committed to each and every day. And in 1 John chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 5. I'll remind you first of the context of 1 John, if you haven't been with us. Uh, A few years ago, we walked through the book of 1 John, but John is writing to a group of people who are followers of Jesus who are really despairing because there there have been people who were once a part of them who had apostatized or, or, or jumped out. They stepped away, if you will, and they began to teach really early forms of Gnosticism. There was this secret knowledge that only some could get, and really what they were doing, they were elevating 
to seek her knowledge and, and lessening the deity of Jesus, that this knowledge was greater than Jesus, that Jesus actually wasn't God. It wasn't, he was a good man, but it wasn't necessarily somebody who could save you. It was this secret knowledge, if you will. And so inside of that, you had these people who were once a part who are now teaching this crazy thing. And, and as a result of that, they had kind of segregated themselves from the people of God. They were living however they wanted to because sin wasn't really, they really, like, they had a weird view of, like, even the flesh. Like, it really wasn't even a thing. And so, sin all you want. There's no consequences of it. That's why John, when he first starts, is like, hey, if anybody says they sin, they make God a liar if they say they don't have sin in their life. That's why he addresses it that way. Uh, And then, and so he's addressing some of the, some of the false teachings, if you will. Uh, But he's also want to encourage those who remained. Those who maybe were despairing because they didn't have the secret knowledge. And I told you last week, I know some of you were smarter. If there was a secret knowledge, you could probably get to it. Me, I don't have a chance in the world. Uh, uh, but so he's writing to encourage them. We see it in chapter five so that they would know that they had eternal life, that they would know that they've been born of God, that they would have full assurance that when they, whenever Christ came, that they wouldn't have to shrink back in fear, but they could have confidence in his return. So that was the intent in writing it. And the way that he kind of goes through the book, it's kind of a cycle of threes. Uh, there's, there's different tests that he gives. And one is a belief test. Uh, what, what we're saying with our mouth and whom we believe and in what we believe. It's a, a doctrinal test, if you will. And so throughout the book, I wish I could count the, the word knowledge or know or confidence throughout it because it's over and over again. And what he's doing is, uh, as a child of God, there's a right knowledge, there's a right belief that we have. And we did that first week of this series, of this, we, we commit ourselves to God's truth and how we can stay away from deception in the age of deception, how we can remain faithful uh, to the message, to be faithful to Christ. The second test that he rolls through is the love test of if anyone does not love, he has not been born of God. Specifically, if, if, if someone claims to know Jesus yet does not love the bride of Christ, then they're making a false claim. And so there's, the, so there's the, the doctrinal test or the knowledge test. There's a love test. And the third one is like an ethic test, a morality test to address the, the rampant living that these false teachers were living. And so a part of it is, and what we'll read this, this morning and how he, John's going to close this letter, he's addressing that. He's addressing those who have been born of God would live one way. Those who are not born of God don't live that way. And so, Justin, how's that going to connect to God's mission? Just stay with me. Anyway, chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. Now, we know that everyone has been born, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Check out the contrast of verse 19. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God, I mean, that's like 17 no's already, right? Uh, we have, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may, what? Know him who is true. We are in him who is true. And his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. In verse 21, you would think this is how John's going to end the letter. It's going to be something miraculous. This is what he says. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your love for us. And we pray now as we open up your word, and as Daniel prayed, as our worship continues through the reading and the teaching of your word, may this be just as much worshipful as singing songs. May we as a church uh, enjoy and anticipate hearing from you today and being reminded of of the great work and the finished work of Christ and the the call that you've placed on our life and even the reality for those who don't know you. God, stir that deep within us this very day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to make four points from this text. If you're taking notes, number one, we'll see in verse 18 is that the, 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 the believer's protection. That as a follower of Jesus, we have a protector. We have someone who protects us. And so we see it in verse 18. It says, we know, there's that emphatic, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, pause there for a moment. This is not the same born of God that we see in the beginning. Here he's speaking specifically of Jesus, so you could read it, but he being Jesus protects him. Jesus protects the one who has been born of God, and the evil one does not touch him. He says, we know this. We know that someone who's been born of God does not habitually keep on sinning. Now, that doesn't mean 
that we don't sin. Matter of fact, that's how we started the letter, right? In 1 John chapter 1, I'll read it and I'll read it again later. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2 begins, I've written these things so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate. So John is not even encouraging here that if you have a sin in your life, that you haven't been born of God. Okay, so this idea of sinless perfection or that that if you sin, you're not a follower of Jesus, it's not biblical. Okay, Uh, because we all are still falling short. What specifically he's talking about here is someone who names the name of Jesus, yet habitually lives their life in sin with without any conviction, without any desire to live a godly life. They have not been born of God for those who have truly been born of God. Do not keep on sinning. Everybody with me? This means yes. Follow with me. Okay. Uh, and so he, he, whoever's been born of God does not keep on sinning. This idea of being born of God, we need to understand what that is literally to be born again. The, 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 the wording here is speaking of a, a past permanent relationship that has started, that began with God, that has continuing effects in the new life. That for those who at some point in their life came to know Jesus, have been born of God, have been born again, we see in John's gospel, been born from above, if you will, who has repented of their sins and been made new, they start a relationship with God. Everybody with me? And because of that relationship permanently starting back here, it has lasting effects the rest of my life. And it's not just something that happened past tense that is done. It's something that happened past tense. It's continuing to happen present tense. And thank be a God in the future tense is it's still going to have a work that happens to where I'm fully, completely made perfect like him. And so he's saying, now everyone who has been born of God that does not keep, they do not keep on sinning. The idea of a, someone who's been born of God who habitually lives in sin First of all, it's incompatible with the work of Christ. Man, did you know that Christ, when he died on the cross, he didn't just buy your justification? He didn't just buy your get out of hell free card. He bought your sanctification as well. He purchased our holy living. He purchased the transformation that, that he's doing in our life. He, he, he's purchased the work that he's done. His, his, his atonement was so sufficient that it covered your entrance into the kingdom, your time in the time here living on the earth as a father of his, and your entrance into glory one day. Like it's not something that, that me and you will have to come up and keep on our like keep tightening our bootstraps tighter every day to make sure that we remain a father of Jesus. No, Jesus in his finished work bought the righteousness. Not only did he impute it to us, but he's actually pulling it out from us and where it actually becomes a part of our life and is purchased at the cross. So for a believer who's been born of God to continue to live in sin, it's incompatible with the work of Christ. Secondly, it's incompatible with the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? At the the moment when we were born of God, what happened? God came to reside within us via the the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this is one of the most beautiful things about the new covenant. Right? In the old covenant, whenever we read and there's a bunch of covenants in the Old Testament that you see the, the different type of covenant. But the, the old covenant, whenever this idea that, that, that God revealed himself to man and for man to live with God, he would have to do these certain things and be these certain things. And then there were foreshadows of the new covenant all the way through. But there was this idea that man in, in his own strength had to become and remain obedient to God. And if he didn't, there were consequences. All right, they didn't go to the promised land when they were originally supposed to. or Things happen, right? Excuse me. But in speaking of the new covenant, what we understand is that God says, you know what? This law that's written outside in the new covenant, I'm going to write it on the inside. I'm going to write it on your heart via the Holy Spirit. I'm going to write it within you, and it will cause you to walk in my ways. It will cause you to believe in the statutes. It will cause you to follow. And so God says, hey, in the new covenant, that's how it's it's the sufficiency of Christ." Uh, atonement in his work is that 
He's now, via the Holy Spirit, he's written the law within us. And in it, it causes us to desire the things of God. It causes us to want to walk in obedience. Not perfect obedience, but inside of us, there's a desire, there's a call, there's a drawing to the very things of God. So side note, if that doesn't exist in your life, then you probably haven't had it written in your heart yet. Jump back in. It's incompatible with the work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit that is residing within us now will draw us to godliness and holiness. Galatians teaches us that the desire is the spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit to keep you from doing the things you ought to do. As a child of God, the Holy Spirit within you, if, like, if you don't like your sin, maybe you still fail, maybe you struggle, you don't always defeat it like me, but you're very aware of it and it makes you sick and you just, that's, that's, that, should be, that should be encouraging to you that the Holy Spirit is residing within you. So that's just an encouraging point there. But the Holy Spirit illuminates. Remember we talked about last week how God is light, right? He's light, he's fire, he's love. He illuminates the sin in our life so that he can consume it. And we say God is light, God is love, God is fire. We're talking about God, the full Godhead here. So the Holy Spirit in a believer's life will lead us towards godliness. Now we still have the flesh, but actually Paul gives us a promise in Galatians 5, if we walk by the Spirit, that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not a, you might not. No, if you and I will walk by the Spirit, the Spirit will never lead us to sin. Ever. Ever. And so if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So continuing sin is incompatible with the work of Christ. It's incompatible with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in John, obviously that wasn't all listed in John's letter, but how could John have confidence that you and I, if we're born of God, we will not continue in sin? Because he says we have a protector. Look at verse, the second part of B says, but he who was born of God, that's a way that John refers to Jesus, right? He does it in this letter already. I remember John 3, 16, his only begotten son. And so that's the way that John really refers to Jesus here. So when we're reading it, what John is saying, listen to me, he who's been born of God does not continue in sin, but he who was born of God being Jesus protects him, protects her. Uh, as in Jesus, man, this is beautiful. He is our shepherd. Like this good shepherd idea of Psalm 23 or John 10 isn't just like feel good. Now what it means is sheep are dumb. Like if you go look up like, like sheep and shepherds, like if without a shepherd, a sheep would just walk straight off this cliff. They literally need somebody to like stop them and, and kind of guard them in. They need somebody to feed them. They want to eat. They can't protect themselves. They can't hide. I mean, they stand out like a cotton ball, right? They, they can't hide. So they can't run fast enough to get away from bears and lions or anything like that. So what does the shepherd do? He doesn't just provide them. He protects them from any enemy that comes after them. And David, he killed lions and bears, right? Like Goliath was nothing, that's a picture of, of, of Christ being our shepherd, our protector, that he protects his sheep. So how could John have confidence that the, that the child of God who's been born of God won't continue in sin? It's because he has Jesus as his shepherd, as his protector. The enemy may breathe threats and harass the believers, but he cannot touch them. That's what he says. He says, and the evil one does not touch him. It literally means grasp him. Like the, the enemy won't grasp him, and so the, the believer's life may be filled with harassments and threats, but we understand that he, that he can't touch us. He can't, again, take a hold of grasp us. He can't reclaim us, because we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, Christ. Jesus will not fail at keeping you Christian. Like he, he will not fail at that. He will protect you. He will keep you. He's serious about keeping those who are his, and he has promised to keep us. No one will pluck us from his hand. What source of confidence? What source of confidence understanding that, and we're going to see the contrast in just a second. You'll understand where the title comes from, no middle ground. But for us who have been born of God, we now have a protector. 
that no longer will I be consumed and eaten up and taken in the hands of the enemy anymore because my Savior, my shepherd's already defeated him. Now, he's still going to whisper words of harassment and threat and temptation, but I will not be consumed by him. Why? Because of who my protector is. That's how sufficient it is. In James chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. A lot of times we give the devil too much credit, like we blame it on the devil. Really, it's just our own stupidity, our own lack of good decisions. But the understanding, and we'll read it in 1 Peter, that our enemy's always trying to devour. Our enemy's always seeking. For the child of God, listen to me, he's always going to be harassing. He's going to try to occupy your time. He's going to try to make you busy. He's going to try to make you doubt the things that God has called you and told you that you were. He's going to sow seeds of deception within the body. He's always going to be working. But what do we do? How do we defeat him? How do we, we don't defeat him. He's already been defeated. But what does, what does James say here? Submit to the Lord. Resist him, and the dude's going to leave you alone. I'm going to read it again. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. What's going to happen? He's going to flee from you. He's a defeated enemy already. He's going to keep whispering and keep, keep hounding, if you will. But James says, listen, just resist him. Say no in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to leave you alone and go to somebody else. Even more encouraging, 1 Peter chapter 5 8 through 10 says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What's it, what does Peter say? The same thing as James. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your, uh, by your brother throughout the world. Pause for a moment. Our enemy does not, he knows he's defeated, right? He's, law, he's, a, he's a lion with a big roar but no teeth. Right. But his job now is is obviously he can't keep Christ from being who he is. And so his his job is is now to try to disrupt and harass the church. And that's what Peter's saying here, man, that that sufferings they're going on around all around the world. The enemy hates the church. And has nothing to do with you. He hates he hates Jesus. And so our time as the church, if we're truly following after Jesus, if we're truly being committed to his truth, his people, and his mission, there will be harassment from the enemy. There will be disruptions that the enemy happens. Our life will be marked by, obviously, joy and the fruit of the spirits, but it will also be marked by an adversary who's constantly going at us, if you will. But here's the promise of 1 Peter. Our shepherd that, that brought us into the fold, our shepherd who protected us while we were in the pasture, check out what he does in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, now contextually, this is specifically to our adversary. So after you've just suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's not just our protector. When, when sheep have been out on the fields, in the fields, and maybe they've ran into a mountain because they're dumb like that, and they have a cut on their forehead, or maybe one of their predators got a hold of them or something, they've got a wound or something. What the shepherd would do whenever they were coming back into the fold, he would stand at the gate and one by one, the sheep would come in. And what he would do, he would take a shepherd's staff that had a little hook. I'm sure there's an actual name for that, but the little hook of the shepherd's staff. And as the sheep would come in, he would hook around their neck and pull their head up and he would try to look for sores and stuff on their heads. And what he would do is he would take oil or anoint, he would like anointment, and he would he would put it on their head to try to heal their wounds. That's the picture that we have here in First Peter is that we we got into we entered the fold in salvation. He's kept us in the fold here, but one day, whenever we get to glory, and we've been suffered and stressed, and the enemy has harassed us, that our good shepherd will stand at the gate, if you will, and he himself will strengthen us and can and, and, and establish us and confirm us. To him, Peter says, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Those who have been born of God will not keep on sinning. Why? Because Christ himself is our protector. And the enemy will no longer again grab a hold of us. Now watch the contrast to verse 19. We know, again, that we are from God. 
The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Take a note a second. is the unbeliever's predicament. Verse 18 tells us the believer cannot be touched by the evil one, but the world lies in his grasp. The world here is literally the general, general population of the world. The people who are on the face of this planet. So I began to think, what, is it, what does it mean to lie in the power of the evil one? So for the believer, we, we've been born of God. We're protected by the Savior. Never again, to get that picture, I want you to see the image, never again will the enemy grasp us. Then the contrast is, the whole world lies in his grasping. You see that picture? Uh, so, so what does it mean to be under the, under the grasp? or in the, What does it mean to lie in the power of the evil one? First of all, Scripture says that those who are the unbeliever is under the domain of sin and Satan, just as we've been transferred to the kingdom where Christ is Lord and King. And in that, there is love and joy and peace and acceptance and, and, and adoption and all those good things. On the other side, there's another kingdom, the key kingdom of the evil one, where there's deceit and there's sin and there's sorrow and there's confusion and there's struggle. And, there's the, and so the reality is to be under the, the, the power lying in the power of the evil one is that we're under the domain of sin and Satan. That we're born in sin and a slave to it. That we're dead in sin. No hope. Hopeless and helpless. Deceived and delusional. Look at that in contrast to verse 18. And the biggest one is that they're separated from their creator. It's a predicament. And I want you to notice something. There is no middle ground between verse 18 and verse 19. You're either protected by Jesus or you're in the grasp of the evil one. There is no middle ground. You're either protected by Christ You've been born of God and you've been protected by him or you're still in the grasp of the evil one. And I know we're in church so most of us would say, I'm not that bad of a person. You may say, I'm not saved, but I'm here, I'm doing good. I would say that you're firmly in the grasp of the evil one. This may, may, I'm about to get in your business a little bit. I don't do bad things, I'm good. You're firmly in the grasp of the evil one. You're deceived that what you're doing is enough, which means you're firmly in the grasp of the evil one. Scripture says our evil one is not just a roaring lion, but he's the angel of light. He comes in and, he, and he, he's deceitful. And he takes things that are true and just mixes them enough to make you feel comfortable. I feel comfortable in our lostness because we're doing enough good things that I'm deceived. And ultimately, listen to me, I'm in the grasp of the evil one. That in, in Bible Belt, Mississippi, and all the charades that Christianity is, and being a, a Christian is, and all the things that we can put on, there's enough things exterior, exteriorly that we can put on to make ourselves feel good and give everybody else this idea that, yeah, they're a believer, but not know Jesus, and you're firmly in the grips of the evil one. There is no middle ground. You've rather trusted in Jesus for your salvation. You've been born of him, and he's protecting you. Or you're still in the grasp of the evil one. Thirdly, in this text, we see the Lord's provision. We see the believer's protection. We see the unbeliever's predicament. But thanks be to God, we got to number three, and we see the Lord's provision. Look at verse 20. And we know, there's that we know again. We know, check this out, that the Son of God has come. Maybe we never get so used to hearing the gospel that we don't go, man, that's awesome that he came. Because the whole world is in the grasp of the evil one, but the Son of God has come. The Son of God has come, and he came with a purpose and an intention. He didn't just come to say that he did, but John says he came and has given us understanding. Understanding of what? What does he cause us to understand? We just go out and walk through First John, and that because Christ came, he gave us understanding of, of sin. 
of ourself, of the gospel. Hey, here's, here's how much in graphs, well, I don't know how to say if I'm saying that correctly, how much in the clinches of the evil one we are, that we're so blind and so dead and so ignorant to the things of God that it took the Son of God actually coming so that you and I could even see how sinful we were. That God had opened our eyes to see our condition. He gave us understanding of our, our plight, of our hopelessness and our helplessness. He gave us understanding of, of ourself and our sin, but thankfully gives us understanding of God's plan of redemption. And John so clearly, I think three times through his letter, he just talks about the incarnation to the cross. And he doesn't end there. He talks about when he comes back. He gives us understanding. So we see the believer's protection. We see the world's predicament. And now again, we're seeing the Lord's provision that the Son of God came and he gave us understanding. What was the understanding? So that we may know. Here's that know again. What, what, what's this whole letter written towards? This secret knowledge, right? That only certain people can get. So John is ending his letter with like an exclamation mark. So no, the Son of God came so that we all could have an understanding that we can know not the truth, but who is truth. Came that you can know him who is true. What's the secret knowledge? It isn't secret, it's a person. His name is Jesus, and he came so that we can understand sin, self, and, and that he came so that we and you can actually know the person that is true. Knowing that we can know him, continue reading in 20, and we are in him who is true. The Son of God came to give us understanding, not only that we can know him, but be found in him. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he, he is the true God and eternal life. So what is the Lord's provision to man's predicament? Is that he sent the Son of God to bring understanding to people who were blind, who, would, had, who had no understanding, to give us understanding that we can see ourselves sin and see the Savior so that we can actually know him who is true, be found in him who is true. And that person that's true, John says, he is the true God. And he is eternal life. Jesus and his gospel is God's provision for the unbeliever's predicament. As we were just saying, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lastly, we see the writer's plea. Verse 21, it seems like it's just a weird way to, to end this letter that's been so, you know, doctrinally sound, applicable and all that. Then he just stops by, and he's speaking as a father because he's up in age here, John is, and he calls them little children. It's a term of endearment. It's a very pastoral type heart. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So how does that even fit into this text? Like, Because you don't even, I mean, you see some talks about idols throughout the New Testament. You don't see a lot. And so specifically here, was he talking about it? Is he talking about like the pagan Roman gods? Like, is, was he talking about with idols here? And I think a dumbed down version of it that I would say is that it, an idol for me and you is anything that occupies the place due to God. And so for some of them, their idols became knowledge. Some of it became pride. Some of their idols, to me, some, for some of them, I think that even our despair can become an idol for us. So what, that'll make sense. That there's hope and peace and things that God offers that, that we don't want to get out of despair and it becomes something that dominates our life. It sits in the place that's due God. It's what defines who we are and what we do and how we go about. 
that God says, no, 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 no. I sit on that throne. And so John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Contextual, like I said, there's putting knowledge in the place of Jesus. And so I wrote down this. I'm not going to talk. Be on guard against any God substitute. As a child of God, be on guard that anything that could be a God substitute. <laughs> I never listened to American, like American Family Radio. I usually don't listen to the radio. I'm weird. I just like driving silence. And if you love American Family Radio, I'm sorry what I'm about to say. If you don't know what it is, uh, <laughs> it's a Christian broadcasting radio network that's been around for a long time. And I had to turn it off after a week of listening because all I heard about was Republicans and Democrats. Like, less about the glory of Jesus and more about what's happening in Congress or the Supreme Court. Or this, those things are important, listen to me. But if we're not careful, those things sit, get in the place of an idol in our life. And I don't get political. We, like, we try to stay away from being political here. We try to be a place that's like, but whenever politics or, or listen, to, I'm, I'm going to talk to you, young ones, cultural climate, whatever is cool to talk about or stand for in, the, in, the, in, the, in our culture, whatever the spirit of the age is to stand for, whenever polit- politics or that takes the place that God alone deserves, we have idols. It's not just these old, old Republican Southern Baptist guys who are, who are all Trump 2024. We're not just talking about those guys. We're also talking about people who live the other way, who try to run away from everything conservative, if you will, and try to make this stance because that's what the culture tells us to do. And if you want to be popular, we want to have more social media likes. We're going we're gonna to black out this or we're going to do that. We're going to do that. Whenever those things become the place that God has in our life, they become idols and we need to tear those altars down. Get rid of them. Sorry. Go back to my notes. I find three immediate responses to this text. I'm going to talk about how we commit to the cross point and what's the next steps, but there's, I think there's three immediate responses. First, the first response you and I should have is gratitude. When we read that text, we have to understand we were in the grasp of the evil one. But of no merit of my own, God calls me to be born again, as Peter says, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Nothing within myself caused that to happen. But because of that, I've been adopted into the family. I've been brought into the fold. And now I have a protector for all of my days, all the way into eternity. Nothing of myself, but the Son of God came so that he would give us understanding so that we can know him who is true, we can be in him who is true, and that person who is true is God in his eternal life. That's the gospel. We should be, feel gratitude for this text. But another immediate response is repentance. If I'm, if I'm born again, and I'm living in unconfessed sin, and I know you know because the Holy Spirit that's in you illuminates that stuff constantly because it's in my, even in my own life. And maybe my job this morning is to call you to repentance because you're a child of God. You're a child of God. He has redeemed you. He has bought your sanctification. Resist the devil. Submit to the Lord. Resist the devil and the devil will flee. Is it that simple? That's what the Bible says to do. Do it. John also says that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And he's talking specifically about false teachings and things like that. But the reality is still true that for the child of God, God in you is greater than anything against you. So maybe for some of us this morning, it's, a, it's, a, it's repentance. That you need to confess sin. You have unconfessed sin in your life that you have habitually lived in. And maybe it's not just like crazy, like sin that we think about being extremes, but maybe it's a, a little bit of unforgiveness in your heart. Or maybe it's spite, or maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's, 
You fill in the blank. You know what it is because you have the Holy Spirit within you. He's already doing a light. I don't have to say it. That's why I love trusting in God's sovereignty is because he does the work. I just, I don't have to know what it is. But thirdly, the third immediate response is urgency. Why urgency? Because yes, we've been born of God and we have a protector, but the whole world is still in the grasp of the evil one. They're helpless, hopeless, harassed. They're separated from their Savior. So my response should be urgently, i got to tell them. I've got to share it with somebody at all costs. So what is CP's commitment to God's mission? Number one is that we love God. It's just a weird place to start. We love God. God is the motive of our mission. Why we exist for God's glory. Why do we go and share the gospel? Because we want God to be glorified from every tongue, every nation, every tribe. From every continent, from every city, we want God to receive the glory because the Son of God has come so that we can have understanding. We have a God-oriented, a God-centered approach to missions. That God is the one who's been sinned against. He's the one that's been wronged. Oh, but the Son of God came. We love God. We're obedient to him. He's committed to his mission, so therefore we're committed to his mission. Secondly, we love others. And here specifically, we're talking about those who don't know Jesus. We love others. Obviously, we talk, y'all know me well enough to know that we love the people of God. But we love others. Intentionally and on purpose, we love others. Because the real, their reality should motivate us to share with them at all costs. What's the reality? They're in the grasp of the evil one. Why do lost people act lost? Because they're lost. They're still in the grasp of the evil one. Thirdly, we proclaim the gospel. Because this is the only message that saves and worthy to be trusted. It's the only news that we can trust. Anybody ever got to where they just can't trust the news anymore? I can't even trust the weather channel anymore. <laughs> this week I was watching the, the weather and it was like, on the high wind day, whatever day that was, when the cold front came in, it was like 17, 17, and then like at 3 o'clock it was supposed to drop down to 12. I was like, I'm going to get in the woods real quick because the wind's going to I get in the woods and like it's back to 18. Like in an hour it changed from 12. Anyway, you can't even trust the news anymore, but the gospel is the news that to be trusted. It is, it, is, it is one that you can stake your life on. It is one that does not change. It is forever the same. It is the one that has been, a, has been planned in eternity past. It was written and present, and one day it culminated in the coming of Christ, that we will, listen, this gospel message is one to be trusted. Preach it. Share it. It doesn't have to be eloquent. What's the gospel? We see it in verse 20. The Son of God came so that we can have understanding so that we can know God and be in God. And he's eternal life. That's not hard. Even I can share that. All right? We share the gospel. So what's my next steps? What's my next steps? Individual, what's my next steps? Start praying. Number one, you pray. Pray for God to allow this word, this reality of a lost man's condition to sink deep within our bones. An urgency will begin to grow. We pray. We begin to pray like we did during gospel reach for God to identify those people in our sphere of influence who we work with or we cross paths with that, that need to hear the gospel. Secondly, we see, we see God at work. We pray for God to work. We see God at work. I believe that God is at work all around us. We see it in Acts, like just this how... Philip and these guys were just doing their thing, and then, or Peter was just doing his thing, and Cornelius' guys showed up. What was going on? God was working behind the scenes that these guys didn't even know what was going on. He's still the same God today. 
We have to believe that where we work, where we play, where we stay, all those things, that God is at work. He's orchestrating for God, for his church to be built. Got to believe that. So what do we do? We, we, we pray for God to give us eyes, then we see where he's at work. We see in the people that are around us. We see for opportunities. We look for where and for who. We're filled by the Spirit. We, that's a command for us to be filled by the Spirit. And if we walk by the Spirit, if it was our urgent urgency every morning when we wake up to be filled by the Spirit, to ask the Lord to fill us, and we would see God at work more around us than ever before. To actually be Spirit-filled people who, who rely on the Spirit to give us eyes to see. Thirdly, we join, we join him in his work. What's your plan? Because if you remember a cross point, I'm not going to get you to raise your hand, but if you remember a cross point, we've committed that we exist for God's glory, right? When we signed the covenant, what we committed to is that we're going to commit to God's truth. We're going to be in his word. We're going to commit to God's people. We're connected to his people. We also committed that we're going to be committed to God's what? Mission. So what's your plan to be committed to God's mission? What can you do? Maybe it starts with inviting somebody to church. That's the easiest, most not offensive, if you will. Invite them to church. Invite them to small group. That works well. Maybe going back to a couple years ago, maybe you ask somebody to lunch or dinner, coffee. We have Starbucks now. And the line's figured out. I mean, it's a cool place to sit. There's Bird Dog. There's, there's places we have in Jones County. We've got a lot of coffee shops and a lot of Mexican restaurants. Go <laughs> to either one of them. Plenty of places to choose from. Invite somebody to sit down. Invite somebody into your home for dinner or for game night or something. And not that people are like just this goal, if you will, but it's what we have to share the gospel. Must share the gospel. Another practical next step for you, and some of you already seen it, but in a foyer, here's this little pamphlet of, we're going to go back down to the DR, the Dominican Republic this summer. Uh, if you're interested, we're going July 1st through the 7th. Uh, we're going to take a team, uh, and so everything you need to know about the information is it's in the foyer on the table. Uh, maybe God's calling you to go share the gospel in another country. Um, anyway, cost, and I even circled the days that were going in case you didn't weren't paying attention to me when I told you. Um, what's your practical steps is we begin to pray. We look for where God's at work, and we join him in that work. We don't have to overcomplicate being used by God. as He's placed us exactly where we are. Every once in a while, we get an opportunity to go to the Dominican Republic, but every day you wake up and live in Laurel, Mississippi, and there's people in the grasp of the evil. Every day. Let's share with them. Cool way that we get to respond this morning, and Luke comes up. Sorry, Luke, I was supposed to call you up earlier, but I just got in, my, got in the groove, man. Uh, ways that we get to respond this morning, if you're a guest with us uh, each week, I mean each month, we, uh, once a month, we partake in the Lord's Supper together uh, on odd number of months, so like January, March, we take it the third Sunday. And if you didn't know this, you're a church member, you hadn't picked up on how we do this, even number months, so February, anyway, is on the fourth Sunday. So third Sunday, fourth Sunday, we rotate them back and forth. So you're here on the third Sunday. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we don't have to, you don't have to be a member of Cross Point uh, to, to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. Uh, but we do ask that you would say, Jesus is my Lord. Uh, this is something we as Christians do that the Lord Jesus has ordained and called us to do, is to partake in this Lord's Supper, that we remember his body and his blood that was shed. We, we anticipate partaking with him in glory one day, that it, it reminds us of who we are in him, who he, what he's done for us. It's unifying. So each month we're going to do that together as a church. Uh, to, to be a unifier for us, to be. And so what I want us to do is take those three immediate responses from the text and go into the Lord's Supper with them. First, gratitude. We take this Lord's Supper 
gratitude should fill our hearts. Amen. Like it should be, this was the cost of my salvation. Maybe it's repentance. As we're looking at this, we still have the COVID cups, but as we're still looking at those COVID cups that have the juice and the wafer at the top, maybe there's unconfessed sin that I have been habitually living in, or maybe there's things that I'm, we pray for God to surface those. Maybe we confess, maybe we repent of those sins before partaking. Or maybe as we look at it and we think about it, in terms of verse 19 this morning where there are many people who have not trusted in this salvation in this gospel and through us partaking the Lord's Supper God would embolden us and encourage us to go share the good news of a body that was broken and blood that was shed so that's our response this morning as we take Lord's Supper together I'm going to ask you to stand I'm going to pray Uh, deacons you can go ahead and come down Uh, we'll have a deacon at each aisle uh, Michael, they're right here. Um, actually, Michael, you hand me one of them. <clears throat> oh, these are the new ones. So the way the new ones work, if you're a guest with us, on the bottom there's the wafer, top there's the juice, uh, and the old ones, you have a double seal up top, so good luck with those. Um, anyway, I'm going to pray. Uh, and after I pray... I'm going to ask you if you're ready to, to come down forward uh, and, and, and grab the elements there. And then don't, don't partake of them yet. Go back to your seat. And in a moment, I'll come up and we will all, we'll partake all together. It's a very unifying thing for us to do. To remember, we are, we are one, a bunch of individual members, but one body with one Lord and one Savior. Amen. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we... Thank you for the sufficiency of Jesus' work and his atonement. God, I pray now as we move into this time where we remember we're obedient to your command, but we remember, God, that you will fill us with gratitude. Maybe even for some of us, you will restore the joy of our salvation. That we won't look at this as just something we do because we're supposed to, but that we have the opportunity to eat from your table today. God, for for the sin that's in our lives, God, may we take this opportunity to to confess that sin. As John tells us in 1 John 1, that we have an advocate, the person, Jesus Christ. We have a high priest who, who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And God, may we, as we partake of this together, may we feel the reality of those who don't know you, that they're in the grasp of the evil. Embolden us to share your good news this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen. No rush, but as you feel ready, you can come and get your elements, and then in a moment I'll come back up and we'll partake together.